0: We're going to be looking at this second letter to the church at Smyrna, but I want to start here in chapter 1. And we're looking at some select letters that Jesus Christ writes to His church. We're doing that before we head back to Romans and also start our spring semester evening series on the end, the the eschaton. The Lord sends these letters to His church, in order to encourage them to persevere, which is what I pray that it will do in your life and also in my own. And while Jesus is described here in chapter 1 in this exalted vision, a vision where John falls like a dead man, Jesus also wants his church to know that, that he's present with them on the earth. It's one of the ways that you can know that, that deism is false. That's not what the Bible teaches, that God is kind of up there, out there. He's, he's kind of created everything and spun it in its orbit and then let it go. He, he's not aloof. He's, he's present. He's not out there. He's in the midst of your life, in your heart, in the church. He wants them to know that, and he wants them to know that he sees their need, and he's also provided for it. There's no problem that you face that God is not already working on a solution. Someone told me that recently, and it was helpful. He's Lord over both. He's Lord over the problem, and He's Lord over the solution. He's marked it out from the beginning. He knows the beginning from the end. And and so any trial or problem or difficulty that comes into your life, God's not responding to that, reacting to that. You may be playing catch-up, but the Lord is not. He already has designed the solution. It's already in the works. It's already fixed. It's already done. You just might not know what it is yet. And so here, he sends word to these seven churches, seven messages that follow after this vision, and the messages are personally addressed to each church with specific instructions. But as a whole, Jesus is reminding them he's not forgotten and he's not forsaken his church. And he hasn't done that to you this morning either. He's aware of all they're going through, and he's in their midst. Look at this introduction, this opening statement in verse 4 of the letter, book of Revelation. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his... throne. So John identifies the the writer of the letter as himself, John, who's the writer, recipient of the letter of Revelation, these seven churches. And then there's a greeting, grace and peace, and the source is from God, the eternal trinity. And the fact that John identifies himself as the, the writer actually lends credibility to the book of Revelation, because most apocalyptic writings are written under some pen name fakes were, were claimed to be written by Elijah or some other significant figure to try to add to weight. I mean, if you got a letter from Elijah, who was already dead, well, that, that would be, that would be ooh, big. John is the one who receives this, simply writes what he received and accurately communicates the greeting to the seven churches that are in Asia. I mean, did you ever wonder why there are seven, only seven letters I mean, there are other churches in 90 A.D., early 90s. I mean, there were Peter, Paul, Timothy, Titus. I mean, men that you never heard of before have planted churches all over the land of Israel, Asia, in indications as far as Spain. If you remember, that's why Paul's writing to the Romans. This is 90, early 90s A.D. I mean, Colossae's just a few miles from, from Laodicea, and they don't get a letter. I mean, Jerusalem had an assembly. Antioch had an assembly. Rome... Corinth, Thessalonica. I mean, the answer to why only these seven is both practical and spiritual. It's practical because it's it's geographic. I mean, the specific seven churches were the major cities of the Roman province. They're addressed in order of the FedEx route except there wasn't any FedEx in those days. The order of the courier who would, who would actually deliver the, red, uh, the letter. No UPS, no FedEx in those days. So the entire letter of Revelation would have been circulated to each church. No printed Bibles, a lot to, to provide uh, you know, these documents to the churches. But, so Ephesus is first because it's the port city. And then Smyrna, and then Pergamum, and then Thyatira, and Sardis, and Philadelphia, and all the way down to Laodicea. And you can just you can just see the route that they're traveling right there. But it's practical, it's geographic. The second reason is spiritual. Why, only seven. There was no need to address every church because the issues and the messages are representative of every church. And God knows his church, knows his churches. I mean, you think about it there was a letter that was written to, uh, to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians, but you read that today, and it applies, doesn't it? I mean, the same issues going on in Corinth are going on today because God knows his churches, and, and there's common issues that are, that are going on. Which also means that the, the messages in the letters here, these seven letters, are not only for these seven churches, but all the churches of Paul's day, these seven letters were also for Corinth and Rome, And then, of course, they're for us today, because Revelation itself is inspired Scripture, the words of the Lord. Did you notice how the message to Ephesus ended last week? Look at chapter 2, verse 7. This is how we ended last week. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. Not not just to Ephesus, but to the church's plural. And if you look at the end of every single one of these seven letters, it says the same thing. 211, 217, 229, 36, 313, 3, 322. All seven letters in the same way. You as ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. I mean, each church was to hear the specific message to their assembly. but They were also to consider what God says to all of the churches. There, there is no textual reason to see these seven churches as seven periods of times or ages in church history or some other symbolism. These are real churches and through them, the church is greeted. And look at the greeting. Greeting in verse 4 is grace and peace. Grace and peace. You need some of that today? Grace and peace? That's how Jesus begins his message to you today. Grace from God is yours, and he offers you peace through that grace. I hope you have both this morning, but if you don't, you'll, you'll have both before, before the day's over. Because Jesus actually promises victory. And I don't mean victory like you hear on TBN or some, you know, earthly prosperity. I'm talking about real, genuine overcoming of life and sin and death. Against all odds and enemies, which is, which is the truth we need in a, in a hostile world. In church, now, and in our day, is in the midst of a hostile world. Jesus made that very plain in the Gospel of, of John. I, I, I leave you sheep amongst wolves. And this is the message of this letter today in Revelation 2, 8 through, through 11. And, and I don't know about you, I love stories where the good guy wins. I mean, there's just something about a story where a hero is outmatched, outgunned, pinned down, where it looks like there is no hope, and then at the last moment, the tables turn, the bad guys are blown to smithereens, and the and the hero triumphs. I mean, I mean, it seems like the nastier the antagonist uh, in the story, or the more helpless the hero, the greater I celebrate the, you know, the victory. I, I recall a silly youth drama. I used to do little dramas for youth, and I I recall one that we we, we saw somewhere we took youth, or was a youth pastor and took kids to, and there was this this Christian thing about Jesus and the devil in a boxing match. Somewhere during the fight, you know, Jesus takes his guard down, and Satan just lands blow after blow. He does this huge uppercut. Jesus goes back, falls on the mat, you know, offers himself up to the uppercut, and crowd goes silent. Satan throws his arms up as if he's won, and then God the Father starts the knockout count. And instead of counting 1 to 10, God starts 9, or ten, nine, eight, seven, all the way down to 1, and at 1, then Jesus rises, and he's declared the, the winner. As silly as that drama was, there's just something in that moment like, you know, Christ has overcome. He's overcome everything, and that overcoming encourages us. It's a really good way to frame up the story of this church in Smyrna, is overcoming. The church here that gets this letter, gets a letter with a message of an encouragement to overcome. And Smyrna is a church that's being pressed down. They're being singled out by the Romans, afflicted by the Jews in the city, and things are not getting better, they're getting worse. In fact, they're told in this letter, they're going to get worse. Unlike Ephesus, which is very prominent, this church in Smyrna is inconspicuous. It's small in stature. It didn't boast of great pastors like, like Timothy. In fact, this church is known, only known in church history, uh, by a martyr because of a martyr. You heard of the man Polycarp? This was his church, which echoes the message of this letter, which you'll see this morning. He's one of John's students. And to these believers in Christian suffering everywhere, Jesus sends this second message. And it's a message that's needed by us because it's been said, rightfully so, we're either in a trial coming out of one or heading into one. And regardless of where you're at, regardless of what you're going through, you might be going through a trial. You might be in the midst of suffering this morning. You may have just come out of one. Jesus wants you to remember you will prevail because of him. He's already won. He's already won the, the war against sin and, and death. Everything else is a skirmish. I'm not saying that it's not painful and it can't do damage, but the ultimate victory against sin and death and the devil has been won. You and I need to walk by faith, not by fear, and not give up. The, the message here, though, is short. It's only four verses. Verses 8, 9, 10, and, and 11, but it Contains precise encouragement on how not just to survive the trials of life, even when they're sincere, but actually overcome in Christ. And this letter is unlike the others because it does not contain a rebuke. I don't know if you paid attention. We haven't been in the letters long enough to pick up any patterns. But there was a rebuke to Ephesus. They did these things right, doctrine, discernment, and and one other, but they there was a rebuke. They They, they had walked away from the from the fresh love that they had at the beginning, that they had drained out. This letter does not contain a rebuke from Christ. And it also doesn't identify a weakness in the church. I mean, only Smyrna and Philadelphia of these seven letters are free from correction. And this is interesting. They're the smallest and least influential of the seven. And the Bible doesn't even record the founding of the church here in Smyrna. This is the only place that this city is mentioned. And in our day of megachurches and power ministries, we would do well to remember when defining spiritual success it's more important to be faithful than powerful. And while the church was small, it was in the middle of a big city. You would think big city, big church. I mean, their church planning strategies is actually go to the Major metropolitan areas because you can suck up a lot of people going through that process. Big place, really small church. It was a port city about 35 miles from Ephesus. It had a population of about 200,000 in the New Testament day. Its modern day is mere Turkey. It has a long history dating back to 3000 BC. It was destroyed by invaders. It was rebuilt by Alexander the Great. It claimed to be the birthplace of Homer. It contained the famous Street of Gold the temple to to Zeus and others. The outline of the message, though, is is, is really straightforward. He begins and ends with Jesus and has details about the church sandwiched in the middle. There's God's message to suffering Christians, to Christians that are afflicted. It's Christ's description in verse 8. There's the church's current situation, the church's coming affliction, 9 and 10, and there's Christ's challenge to the church and to you me to overcome. Look at how he opens the message. It begins with the, with the description of Christ. Look at verse 8. He says, and to the angel, the representative of the church at Smyrna, write, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life says this. I mean, do you find that odd? I mean, here's a church in affliction, really hard times. There's, there's nothing to rebuke. Nothing but, but praise for, 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 for this church. And Jesus starts by talking about himself. I mean, they're in the middle of affliction. I mean, we normally want to get the solution for our problem, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know about you, Lord. Tell us how to get out of this mess. We're in a hard situation here. But God is where our eyes need to be focused in the midst of a trial, which is exactly why Jesus begins here. You keep your eyes on the trial of suffering and what you're going through and you're not going to find any peace or anything to over, any ability to overcome there. Eyes need to go upward and outward, not inward. And he introduces himself here with two titles. He's the first and the last and he's the one who was dead but became alive. The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. And he, he speak. I mean, each uh, letter has similar characteristics. They all have an introduction. They all have an evaluation of the circumstances followed by words of encouragement or rebuke or counsel or warning. Sometimes all four. What's unique, though, to each individual letter is the description that Jesus gives of himself. There's an introduction with a description of Christ in everything, in all of the letters, comes out of the vision. So one big vision about Jesus, this is who he is, and then different aspects of that of Christ, the vision that was seen by John, addressed to each of the specific churches. The specific aspect of Christ, the specific uh, characteristics of Christ, is specifically tailored to the problem the church is going through. The description of Christ is in each letter from uh, the vision of chapter 1, which echoes Old Testament prophecy, and it's also for the church, reminding them of Christ's sufficiency. Each description of Christ makes the exact match, matches the exact need of each church, uh, fitted for their uh, individual circumstances. So the description Jesus uses was chosen to meet their need, the need that churches face. I mean, when you are going through, through suffering, there are specific attributes about God that encourage you, right? There are others that are nice to hear about and be reminded about. There's specific ones. Like, okay, that one, that, that is what, what I need to lay hold of. And Jesus is who you need because he's exactly what you need, no matter your circumstance. There are specific things about the Lord that God will highlight with specific tribes. And this particular title is an encouragement for their specific circumstance, and it's also an example. He's the first and the last, he says. The first and the last, the one who's the first and the last. The title declares that God is the eternal one. He's the governor over all, both history and future. Whatever they've been through, whatever they're going through right now, and wherever they're about to go, he's the first and the last. Isaiah 48, 12. Listen to me, old Jacob, even Israel whom I've called. I am he. I'm the first and I'm also the last. He's the God of the ages. We sang about that this morning. That's an encouragement. I know where you're at on the timeline of history because I created history. I started it, I'm controlling it, and I'm going to end it. So wherever you're at on it, I know exactly where you're at. You remember the old illustration I've given you before? We are like the the guy in the middle of the, the Macy's Day Thanksgiving parade, and we're down there in the middle of the tuba section. You can see the person in front of you, and you can hear the horns blowing behind you, but you can't see the beginning and the end of the parade. But then there's the guy who's up on the booth that's you know, talking and doing all the announcements, and, oh, this float's coming. He can see the beginning and the end of the parade. Maybe a larger section of it. God can see the beginning and end of history. He's ordained it all. Nothing is, is by chance. He's the God of the ages. So this is an encouragement. He's the first and the last. He's also the eternal one. He's the eternal one in relation to time. And secondly, he's the resurrected one in relation to life. He's the eternal one in relation to the time, but he's the resurrected one in the middle. And they need to know who God is. They need to know that he's a God over the future of this life and that he's conquered death and opened the door into the next. He's not just controlling the beginning and the end, he's opened the door to what's after the end. What's after the end is eternal. He was dead and became alive. I mean, the verbs are are past tense, pointing to the death and resurrection of Christ, but also the example of Christ. I mean, the eternal one, who was the first and the last, became our incarnate and was made dead, a reminder that even the eternal Son of God became willing, a willing subject to rejection and persecution resulting in death. He came into his own, his own received him not, but also that the grave couldn't hold him. And this was not the end. He lives. He's opened the door to whatever comes next. And so too will believers at Smyrna suffer, but they'll find ultimate victory in Christ. He'll be with them on the timeline from the beginning and the end, and he has also already created a way to come out the other side. And so it reminds them who he is. I always remember when you're reading the Bible, the Bible reveals God. Sounds like a dust statement, but a lot of times we go to Scripture and we look for to meet our needs what am i going through what you need to remember is the main character in the bible is god and that is who you need to focus on and then he also gives you instructions about the problem and people need god need to be reminded of who he is because of the needs that they're facing because whatever you're facing or anyone else for that matter jesus is always more sufficient than any need he's not only sufficient but he knows every situation here's the second part of the message, which describes the church's situation. Not only from beginning to end, and I have, I've blown out the, the other side, I've opened the door beyond, but I know where you're at in the middle of it right now, verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they're Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. I mean, Jesus here says he knows three things about the church, specific things. He knows their tribulation, he knows their poverty, and the slander that they, that they faced. Again, you've, you've been through this, but imagine being this church, receiving this, in the midst of this, and the Lord specifically reminds, like he names what they're going through. And you've been there, you've read the Bible, and there's a verse of Scripture that the Spirit of God illuminates to you, and you go right there. The Lord knows what I'm going through. And he does. Tribulation, poverty, and slander. Notice it says your tribulation, your poverty, and slander. They're unified in their struggle. This is, this is what the whole church is going through. It's coming upon the church as a family. And we're one in Christ, and Jesus addresses them as one in their circumstances. And he mentions first their tribulation. It means that they were under pressure, this severe pressure. So the first word is generally what they're going through. They're going through a, a, an intense, pressurized situation, and the next two words identify specifics about the pressure. That they're under pressure, and then the next two words will say, and, and here's specifically what kind of pressure they're under. Describes the basic problem the church faces, and then describes aspects of the persecution. And they were maltreated by their enemies, and that brought their poverty, and the fact that they were evil spoken of. Were the evil spoken of, and that brought their poverty? Were were they in poverty, and and then and vice versa? We don't know the order. The word persecution, though, is a word that's often overused today, which can actually make us out of touch with a, with a passage like this. I mean, you're sitting here, you're trying to imagine in your mind as you're listening to this passage, me preach it. What okay, what is going on? What would it be? I want to try to imagine what it was like. What was the, the, the church in Smyrna going through? And then you import in your mind what you think persecution is. And we talk about persecution, but we rarely have a real connection to, to this kind of, of persecution. I mean, stores making employees say happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas or mean tweets about you is not tribulation, affliction, and persecution. I mean, it, it, it's not fun, the secularization of the culture is something to push back on, but that's not this—not to that level. I mean, it can lead to that, but that's not what this church is going through. I mean, the closest thing that that I remember as a church ever coming into this kind of genuine pressure and slander happened years ago at TCS. The narrative that was spun that was patently false, people lied, believed it, and then just the world unleashed on the church and the and the school. It's exactly what's happening. God prevailed in our case, we, you know, we even grew because of it, but that wasn't the case for Smyrna. I mean, their vindication is still in the future. He mentions their poverty. They're under this intense pressure. What kind of pressure? Well, pressure that poverty brings. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. It's not real poverty, it's real earthly poverty, but not where it matters. Well, the believers didn't get didn't get support, but instead they were experiencing scarcity of resources. This is a specific type of trial that they're in the middle of. It was a shortage, a deficiency, and they lacked. And you, you can likely relate to this one. I mean, if you've ever felt the pressure of knowing that you have bills that are due and you genuinely do not have the resources to cover them. And there's no credit either. nothing else on the card, and you don't have any in the bank. And it's due when you've tasted this, this pressure. It's an amazing pressure. It consumes you. You lay awake at night thinking about what you can sell or how you can get a job to make extra money to relieve the pressure. And in Smyrna's case, they were lacking resources because they were Christians, because they were believers, not because they're bad choices. I mean, when I look back in my life, when I felt that just taste that pressure, of too much month at the end of the money, it was not because I was a Christian, typically. It was because I made a bad choice or a series of bad choices. And the Lord helped me, even in the midst of that. He's gracious. Even to people who make bad decisions. There was a church member years ago, who I won't, won't name, It's often lamented about the whole passive sanctification that was coming into the church. You just kind of let go and let God. You just... Let God zap you with sanctification. You don't fight. You you don't do things. And he he would just. This has infected the the church. He suggested that I I, I work a quote into a a sermon. Everything happens for a reason. And sometimes the reason is you're stupid and you make bad decisions. Smyrna chose the good portion. Smyrna. It was embracing Christ, and they lacked earthly resources because of that. We're not told the specific reason that they lacked resources. The common ones during that time were, were pagans and Jews were destroying Christian property and mobs, and just to be cruel. I mean, they destroyed crops, they broke their pottery, they crashed their storefronts. I mean, Christians also at times were, were from poorer classes. So they didn't have much to begin with. They didn't have much to begin with when they came to Christ. And then when they came to Christ, then, then, then pagans were, were doing horrible things. I mean, James 2.5 tells us that God actually chose the poor. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and, and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? They also lost their employment in a pagan atmosphere, This is not a friendly place to Christians. I mean, you didn't want to employ people who were pariahs or viewed as outcasts. I mean, if you were in Nazi Germany, you didn't hire a Jew, even if you weren't for Hitler's program, because it was just easier to avoid them. They're a problem. Religious liberties, no doubt, had been lost. I mean, Judaism was permitted by Rome, but once the Jews disassociated with Christians and expelled them from the synagogues, they were no longer protected. But most likely, I mean, all those things there, but also most likely they lacked because Christians were, these Christians were generous givers. They gave according to their ability and, 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 and beyond it. I mean, now that's, that's convicting. I mean, I mean, if you give out of worship or others' needs, then you don't stop when it reaches an uncomfortable place for you. And the third description here, the general one, under pressure, that came from their poverty, it also says they were slandered. They were evil spoken of because they were they were Christ followers. And their poverty added to the narrative. The, the word that's used here is the same word used about God, blasphemy. They were blasphemed; It's closely related. The slander, to slander God's people is to blaspheme him. Again, James 3, 9-10, through 10, book of James this morning. With it, talking about the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God, in the image of God. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. Brethren, these things ought not to be. It says if you speak evil about someone, you're actually speaking evil about God because they're made in His image. Acts 9-4, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I mean, it, it, if you ever have someone speak evil about you, worry more about their blasphemy of God's image than, than your moral portrait. Christ associates himself. You're associated with Christ. Associates himself with the church. Worry more about that than, than what they're saying about you. You remember Spurgeon's quote, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, you're far worse than he thinks you to be. But if anyone speaks evil of you, because of Christ, they're speaking evil of you, not because of anything about you. And there's plenty of things that people could say about you or me, A weakness, uh, you know, the way we come across, looks, what I mean you name it. People can find something to say, and some of it's legitimate. But if anyone speaks evil about you because of Christ, then rejoice. Rejoice. You're in fellowship with your master. You're in fellowship with your master whenever they do that. And not only that, it can get worse before God makes it right. Here's the third section. It's, it's this prophecy. It's actually a foretelling of coming affliction. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. So here's the specific aspects about me that I want to set up front. I'm the first and the last. I control the timeline from beginning to end. I set it in motion. I parachuted in the middle of that in the incarnation. And I conquered the real enemy, sin, death, and hell. And I blew the back end of the rut out, out of the grave. I've opened the door what's beyond the end. I know what you're going through specifically. I know the severe pressure you're under that's related to your poverty and related to what people are saying about you because of me. And now here's what I say about that. Do not fear what you're about to suffer in the future. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He says, do not be afraid about what is to come. And you're sitting there listening, going, "Well, oh, now, how's that encouraging? <laughs> I mean, I'm already suffering, and you're telling me more is coming. I mean, you would expect this to say, this, this is what our flesh would expect. He says, do not be afraid about what is to come, because it's not coming. I've stopped it. I'm the Lord, and you're following me, and I've averted the difficulty. I've struck down your accusers, and now you may enjoy the peace of an opposition-free ministry. That's what you would expect it to say from a human standpoint, but that's not what it says. It says it's coming, and it's going to get worse. He says it's imminent and unavoidable, evidenced by the words about to come, and behold. It has an impish source. Satan is mentioned twice and has an intended purpose. And if you're about right in the middle of this message thinking, ha ah, I don't know exactly how encouraging this, you know, th- th- this is, then you might need to go back to, and, and, and deal with the ownership issue which I'll talk a little bit more about later. You I mean you understand, that at the moment that you claimed Christ and that Christ claimed you, you died. That that was the end of you at that point. The moment which Christ laid hold, that he claimed you, and you bowed the knee to him, that was the dividing line. I mean, that's when you died. That was the end of you. And and that was a a, a praise the Lord that was an end of you. Because what ended was, was a sinful wretch and someone who was headed to hell and didn't love God. That person's gone. And now you've been given new life. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You've been given a new life. And that new life is in God. And that new life is His. It's His to do whatever He wants to do with it. You have no rights. You have no anything. But you're in the hands of a good and loving God. So if you're in here trying to negotiate Suffering and trial in the midst of life, and whether that's comfortable or whether that's not, you might need to go back to bedrock and say, wait a minute, I'm already dead. Like, like I've died. I'm no more. And what I am now, I'm, I'm Christ. His, in His hand. He's free to do with me whatever He chooses to do, and He's good. He has chosen good works that he has laid out. And I'm in the midst of those good works. And those good works just happen to be right now in the midst of of a suffering, of, of trial. He says it's imminent and it's unavoidable. And he still tells them that this is an encouragement. And it's encouragement because they know that they're already dead. The increasing persecution was in addition to the pressure and the poverty and the blasphemy they're already facing. And Jesus uses two words to tell them about its increase. It's looming. It's inescapable, but not out of his hand. He says it's about to. Mellow is used twice. Behold, it's coming, he says. There are times, and I'm thankful for this, there are times the Lord does not inform us of what's coming, right? He doesn't. He even tells us sufficient for the day or the troubles thereof. Give no thought about tomorrow. You can't even control tomorrow. Your life's a vapor. You don't even know whether it's coming. You know, I am really glad the Lord doesn't tell me about the difficulty coming Monday or Tuesday or Friday because then all I would be doing the rest of the day is going, okay, how am I going to deal with that? What am I going to do on Monday or dreading Monday? Or if I was told no, thing bad is going to happen or difficult you know, is on Monday, then I'm resting on my laurels. It's, it's okay. I'm not praying. I'm not doing it. The Lord is wise. And yet there are other times that the Lord has told us and will tell us what what is coming. In his wisdom, he knows that the knowledge would not be helpful to us. And there are other times he knows that it is. And here's a case where the Lord specifically informs the church of what is coming so that they may prepare themselves. This is exactly what Jesus did to the disciples, isn't it? In the upper room, before he dies, he prepares his disciples and he tells them about what's about to happen. He tells them in general. All the way through. I'm the Messiah. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And then when it comes time, when the pressure is going to be intense, then he draws them near and he speaks to them. Words. He prays a high priestly prayer in front of them. He encourages them. He washes their feet. He, 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 he shows great compassion for them. And then, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes Peter, James, and John and he says, pray that you might not enter into temptation. It's coming. Coming. Pray. And even when they fell, when they didn't pray, and they weren't prepared, the Lord preserved them. Because He'll not lose one of the sheep. Like Jesus did to the disciples, He's, he's telling them to prepare. He informs them of the source. I mean, the source of the affliction was not God, it had a human and a spiritual agent. I mean, humanly speaking, the, the, the slander and trouble came from those who called themselves Jews but were not, the text says. These are the men, like Jesus said in John, you're of your father the devil. These are real people in real places who did these real acts, but the one behind their hatred and their deeds was Satan. Satan in Hebrew means adversary. You have an adversary. The church has an adversary. God has an adversary, and he's real. And one of the ways he works is to try to lull you to sleep that he's not real. He's always hated God's people. He hates you, he hates God, and he always will. So don't be surprised if the world hates you or slanders you or calls you a bigot or doesn't like the gospel or a homophobe or whatever it is. Don't be troubled whenever that happens. It likely means you're on the right track. Now It's entirely possible. It is. It's entirely possible that we're offensive to people because we're not hits. And if that's the case, don't be a not hit. But most of the time, the pressure that you come from the world that's genuinely associated with Christ is because it's associated with Christ. And you're associated with Christ. It likely means you're on the right track, and God has good purposes in that. Look at the purpose in verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. It's coming, something in the future. Behold, here's the source. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. That's better than temptation. Satan wants to tempt you to sin. God tests, allows testing. It's it's for a specific good purpose. God tells them what Satan intends, and he also tells them what he will accomplish. The Lord's intended purpose is that you may be tested. Christians suffer in the world for a reason. That you may be placed under the pressure here so that you might be able to see the the fissures and the cracks in the concrete, things that you can't see without this specific pressure. The one who controls the end from the beginning and is in the middle of it knows exactly how to orchestrate circumstances, what to open the door to, what to keep it closed to, in order to bring about this, this testing and this trying of a Christian's faith, so that as faith presses back on the the pressure that's coming, the affliction that's coming, that faith gets stronger, and it also reveals where it's it's weak and where God needs to fill in the, the gaps. It's always doing something for your faith. It tests it and it strengthens it. That's what James 1 says. James, we're in secondary scriptures in James this morning. You know it. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith, pressure comes, faith presses back against that. I'm tempted to give up. I'm tempted to be depressed. I'm tempted to do whatever. And even in the, even you can't control the circumstances. The, the storm is upon you. Your faith presses back against that. And that pressing back produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. and That ends somewhere and the end is perfection and completion, where you're lacking nothing in your faith. It isn't to show God what you'll do in the midst of the circumstance. I mean, he knows already. In fact, he's allowed the exact trial at that exact moment for you, for the church. The testing is to help you see where the strengths and weaknesses are, where the soft spots remain, where the concrete has hardened... Where it hasn't. In fact, the scripture actually spells out five reasons that that Christians Christians suffer. Five reasons that Christians suffer. What are the reasons in scripture that that God allows us or leads us into into trial? And the first one is is probably what comes to your mind: discipline. But it might be a little bit different than you think. You should hear in that word discipline, the root of, of disciple. It's to disciple you. It's to disciple in you. I mean, you probably think of spanking. And trials come for spankings too. Uh, this bad thing's happening to me because God's punishing me. There's some difficulty that's coming because of what I did. Cause and effect. That's not the first thing that you should think of. I mean, Hebrews 12, 6 tells us that God... God chastens us, proving that we 're actually his children. again, this is the per- person a purpose that we we too often think about when suffering comes upon us. We go through the trial and often think that God is punishing me, but frankly that 's the least likely cause on the list that he's punishing you, or that he 's correcting you in some negative way because God lets us go far more than then he actually reigns us in. I mean, the Lord is long-suffering. He actually wants us to turn toward him rather than have to put a bit and a bridle in our mouths and pull us back. He waits patiently. But he surely loves us enough to do that. Loves us enough to put the bit and bridle in our mouth. I mean, can you think of a time when he did that? You were headed in this direction, and you would not heed, you would not turn to him, and all of a sudden, you you feel the bit and the bridle pulling you back in another way. Yield. To the bit and the bridle. The second reason I think is super encouraging, preventative. First is disciple you, the other is preventative. He, Paul's thorn was to keep him from greater sin. Now this one is such a promise. Paul was prevented from doing what God knew he would do if he didn't have the difficulty, if he didn't have the thorn in the flesh. I mean, listen, don't assume that all all of your restrictions and limitations are bad. They're not. Whatever limitations that you have, whether it's, It's in practical things or whether it's in personal things, abilities or otherwise. Don't think, oh, if I just had a little more money or a little better health or could speak a little better like Aaron rather than being me, Moses, that I could do more for God. Don't think that way. I mean, those limitations may be there to protect you from your own destruction. You understand God has purposely gifted you to use you and he's also purposely limited you so you would need others, but this is so you wouldn't destroy yourself. You don't believe me, you just read the the passage of the Tower of Babel where the Lord actually limits the people to restrain them from destroying themselves. I mean, if we are left unhindered, many times our own hearts would bring about a great shipwreck. One writer said, Don't always assume every contrary wind that makes you lower the sail is evil. It just might be God keeping you off of the reef that you can't see. If the sale's still up, you'll get right into it. Listen, far more Christians have been destroyed by prosperity than poverty. Far more. Far more pastors have fallen and Christians have fallen from gifting rather than their limits. I mean, if you're the type of person where everything comes easy, be wary. It might sound good, it might feel good, but it might have you in a really bad place. If you find accomplishments are harder and require more faith and more labor, rejoice. I know that's not what it feels like. I know that's not what delights the flesh. Believe me, I know. I'm like you. But it's true. God typically uses the least likely to succeed. You remember those pictures in the yearbook? Most likely to succeed. You know, biggest this, whatever that. The world says, this guy, this girl is most likely to succeed. That's not who God uses. God uses the least likely to succeed. The person in the yearbook that you would go through and you remember that guy? Whew, everybody made fun of him. That's the guy that the Lord will use. The third reason is for a greater testimony. Acts 9.16, Paul It says Paul would suffer greatly, a great many things for God, and in turn be a greater testimony. He's suffering because of testimony. I mean, suffering is a stage upon which God displays his might, and a believer displays his or her faith. That's what the Lord's work's all about, making much of him. I mean, your cancer, though not caused by God, may be your platform to be used for God. Your spouse's sin, though grieving to Christ, may provide you a great ministry. For you to testify to others. Your battle with regular afflictions. You soften your heart to receive more of Christ and help others to do the same. I mean, one writer said, God does not make the mess, but he knows how to turn a pig into bacon. Especially when it makes a wallow in our lives. He doesn't make the mess. But he knows how to turn that pig into something really good. testimony Fourth is education. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, tribulations works patience. I oh, don't pray for patience. You don't really need to. In one sense. Tribulation will bring it. There are things, you listening, there are things about God that would remain unlearned in our lives apart from suffering. There are things about God. You like to learn things about God? You Look up in the stars and stand in amazement who He is. There are things about this God that you and I would not be able to learn outside of suffering. You learn it in the dark. Yet you're in the dark, not alone. You're in the dark with somebody with you, holding your hand. He's the light in the dark. You'll not learn it without going down into the dark. You may not learn the fullness and sufficiency of Christ if you are never hungry. You never lack. Suffering teaches you things. that you cannot learn anywhere else. The fifth reason is God's granted you a privilege. Again, listening to this, privilege? Go back to the bedrock. It's a privilege if you don't exist anymore. You're, You're gone. You... You're already dead. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are not to suffer as an evildoer, but those who truly suffer for Christ are associated with his suffering. And that's a great privilege. We're never more like our Savior than when we love and give. God is love, and his love was so great that he gave his only begotten son. So sacrificial giving and love from others. You're never more like the Lord than men. And you're never more like your Lord on earth than when you're falsely accused and persecuted for his name's sake. You're associated with him because of it. And then God tells this church what their suffering will be. Look, Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. I mean, this is what's coming. It's going to be imminent and it's going to be short and it's going to be imprisonment. And notice it says, so that you'll be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. So it's imminent, it's coming, and it's going to be short. It's imprisonment and it's a short period. 10 days, symbolic period of imprisonment. God will provide a way of escape. But for some, that would be death which leads us to this, this final point. It's Christ's challenge to overcome. Notice what the Lord tells them. He tells them the difficulty is coming ahead of time. He tells them that the difficulty won't be for all. It says some of you will be cast into prison. The, the, the ones that have been chosen for for that specific suffering, because he knows who can handle it and he knows who he can't, Don't worry about the Lord not knowing where you can handle it or not. He's not going to put you in the midst of something that's going to crush you. So some will go, not all. He tells them the purpose, it's for testing, and he tells them it's going to be limited. And then he gives them the silver bullet to obey this command, do not fear. And that is the promise of heaven, future home. The trump card for any difficulty or suffering is that the worst thing that can happen to you is to go to heaven and you see the Lord face to face. That's the worst case scenario. So if that's the worst case scenario, anything less is surely endurable. That's why you're not to fear. That's why this idea that God is for you and He's going to either sustain you for His glory or take you to Himself is, is at the beginning and the end of this. There's nothing to fear under those parameters see it? He gives two commands. Do not fear, be faithful unto death, and finish it. Fear not, be faithful, and finish it. Until death. Keep going. When you get in prison, when you go to prison, when you get out of prison, be faithful all the way unto death. Whenever the death comes. Which you don't know. And I don't know. Stop fearing. Do not fear. Stop fearing. It's a precise command to cease from something. I was, I was reading this message last week. I told Tracy I convicted myself. It's been so long since I preached this passage that I went back and read my own sermon, and I thought, wow, I'm so convicted. I said, when I preached this passage years ago, I only fear when I I don't want to lose something or I'm unsure what I'm standing for. Unsure. And here was the convicting part for me. If I fear losing it, it's a sure sign I've not relinquished it to the rightful owner goods my position my reputation my image you must relinquish ownership which goes back to that bedrock thing the ownership question's already been settled as a believer you just might take back ownership and you need to remember you don't have any and you must settle the question is jesus your lord doesn't mean that that won't come up again But perfect love casts out all fear if he is then you have nothing to fear they take everything from me, I still have God, and I can never lose Jesus. Nothing can take that relationship from me, not even my own sin. So do not fear, and then do not falter and finish it. Become faithful, even unto death, or until death. You may not die in your suffering if you're in the midst of it right now. Jesus calls you to be faithful wherever the end is white hot storm or trial may not kill you or imprison you, but it's hard. Wherever it takes you, be faithful. Don't quit. See it through. Lean on the Lord. Because a promise awaits the overcomers, which is what he says at the end of verse 10 and 11. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death, I will give you the crown of life. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the, by the second death. There's a reward, or promise that's stated here. Remember? He's the beginning and the end. He's, in, he's inserted himself in the middle of the timeline. He's, he's opened the door to what, what's coming, and now he says this is what's coming. Crown of life and overcoming the second death. A victor's crown, promise to the overcomer. Christ will bring life out of death, and so you overcome this. Who will not face the second death is the the lake of fire. and Who will escape that? All of God's people. I mean, the promise is heaven. It's it's rewards. You don't get this idea that you're in the midst of the trial and how well you do in the trial is going to determine whether God does this or God does that or whether God, you know, blesses you or you, no. He has claimed you. He, he, he died for the ungodly. I was witnessing to a man last week, and he was telling me how good he was. You know, I, I, I mean, he was being sincere. He had a lot of people around him that do a lot of evil things. He's like, I just don't do those things. I don't want to do those things. I'm, I'm a moral guy. Said, you know, that's great. He really is. I'm glad you're that way, rather than these other wicked ways that you're describing about your coworkers and others that won't get you to heaven. Because Jesus didn't, didn't die for moral people. He died for sinners. Don't disqualify yourself by claiming to be a moral person. Don't look there, because that's, that disqualifies you. I mean, Jesus died for the ungodly. Jesus came to the weak, to the helpless, to the poor, to those who had no ability on their own. He laid claim to them. He placed them in the palm of his hand. He holds them. No man can pluck them from his hand. He began a good work. He will continue it. In the middle. That's already fixed. Whatever happens here, whatever we're talking about here, is what's happening in the middle of the guarantee, which is so that you can know him better, love him more, worship him, and so your faith can actually be strengthened. And He'll help you in the midst of it. By reminding you who he is, the fact that he's in the midst of it with you, he knows specifically what it is, he's in control of all of it, and he's already promised the victory at the end. That's encouraging, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that even in the midst of trials, things could be confusing. Be weak and feel weak. We need to avail ourselves of the graces, prayers of others, your people, your word. And even then it can be hard. And Lord, the the one thing that holds us, that anchors us is who you are. Your words cut through the darkness. Words are light. Give a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And the promise that, that we, this is not our home, this is not the end, this is not reality. We live here, but this is, this is not it. It's coming. Is where our true hope is. Anchor us in both of those places, who you are, and hope that is to come. I pray for anyone this morning, Lord, that's in the midst of a trial, or maybe coming out of one, that they would be encouraged that you you know. And you'll help them. And then anyone who doesn't know the true peace of Jesus, they would have that today by by giving up their life. At the end of them, oh, you bring something wonderful out of that Lord, a new life. And you care for it until the end. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.